Well, if you will, would you take your Bible this morning and open it to John chapter 19. John chapter 19. As we look here in verses specifically 23 down through 30 on the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's our theme, though it's not Easter. We're meeting uh, the Easter theme of his death here in January, and it's been an exciting study. Certainly, I know that you know that throughout the ages, God has given us a roadmap by which we would know of the Messiah's coming. In fact, Scripture was foretelling the Messiah's coming through what we call prophecy. That prophecy came by way of the prophets. The prophets, if you will, gave us signpost prophecies so that the Messiah's coming would be recognized, that his coming would be even believed upon. Uh, maybe you didn't know, but if you didn't, or you do know, that uh, there's more than 330 prophecies in the Old Testament regarding the person and the work of the coming Messiah, and we know that to be Jesus Christ. Those prophecies are so specific that the mathematical probability of Jesus fulfilling a few of them is absolutely impossible apart from an act of a sovereign God. In fact, there was a man by the name of Peter Stoner, who is the chairman of mathematics and astronomy at Pasadena College. And Peter Stoner was and is passionate about prophecy. And he took about 600 students from the InterVarsity Fellowship. And Stoner, in his, in his book, Science Speaks, estimated, okay, there's over 330, but he estimated the probability of fulfilling 48 prophecies was just, of one man fulfilling 48 prophecies, was one chance in a trillion, 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 and trillion. You can't even, that was 13 trillions. You can't even fathom that um, and comprehend a number that big. In fact, on your iPhone, don't try. They don't even have a number that goes to that. So Stoner then broke it down into eight prophecies, eight specific prophecies about Jesus Christ. And working with that group of students, he came up with an extremely conservative probability for each one being fulfilled and then considered the likelihood of Jesus fulfilling just all eight of those prophecies. His conclusion was staggering. Stoner calculated the chance of any one man fulfilling eight prophecies. Here was his conclusion. His conclusion was to be one... It's even hard to say it. It's, it's better to say just 10 to the 17th power, okay? Or one quadrillion, you could say, okay? Um, or 100 quadrillion. One quadrillion, you got that? Is one, it's even hard to say, thousand trillions. So we got over 330. 48 was... 
was uh, that number I gave to you, eight prophecies was 10 to the 17th power, but then he broke it down even further. He said, let us try to visualize this chance of one in eight in one person. He said, if you mark one in 10 tickets and place all the tickets in a hat, you stir them and then ask a blindfolded man to draw one, his chance of getting the right ticket is just one in 10. So then he said this, suppose then that we take 10 to the 17th power silver dollars and lay them face down in Texas. They will cover the whole state of Texas two feet deep. Then he said, take one silver dollar and then he said, stir them, mark it, and then stir them thoroughly all over the state blindfold a man and tell him that he can travel as far as he wishes, but he must pick up one silver dollar and say that that was the marked one. He said, what chance, of, what chance would he have of getting that right? Stoner said, just the same chance that the prophets would have had of writing eight prophecies and having them all come true in one man. I mean, it just is staggering alone. I mean, if you're here this morning and you like apologetics or you wonder about how do all these things come about, there's just one apologetical truth. Jesus Christ, his coming, his life, death, resurrection, and second coming, he fulfills over 330 prophecies. That's an example of just eight. As you glance down in your Bible here, we're looking at verse 23 to 30. But all the way from verse 16 down through the end of the chapter in verse 42, scripture or prophecy is being fulfilled. In fact, I think it's the control of the entire narrative here. Look at verse 24. They said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. Speaking of his tunic, this was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Glance down at verse 28. After this, 1928, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. And so verse 29, a jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put it on a sponge full of sour wine, on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. Prophecy fulfilled. Look down at verse 36. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture, verse 37. They will look on him whom they have pierced. So all the while, the greatest injustice was committed against the most innocent man, citizen, the Lord Jesus Christ. God was accomplishing your salvation sovereignly through the scripture by the fulfillment of his death. Now we're looking at this section of scripture, I said a week ago, in three different events. And I just decided to follow that outline of the Apostles' Creed that stated that Jesus was crucified dead and buried. And that's our text here. He was crucified in 16 through 30. Verses 31 through 37, he died. 
verse 38 through 42, he was buried. And of course, that's not the end of the story. The end of the story is he will be raised, of course, in the very next chapter. But that's our theme. So God's orchestrating the crucifixion, the death, the burial of Christ to fulfill all this messianic prophecy in order that your faith might be strengthened. So let's look at that first division, the crucifixion of our Lord. And we said, and we began last week, that there were a number of fulfillments that Jesus Christ fulfilled from the Old Testament. And we just begin to walk through a couple of those at the beginning. Number one, he fulfilled prophecy just in the statement in verse 16. So he, speaking of Pilate, delivered him over to be crucified. And I took time to look at that term with you, paradidomai, that Christ was delivered over. And even though Pilate humanly delivered him over, the input of the text all over the gospel is that Jesus prophesied that he would be delivered over, and it happened exactly as he stated. But there's a second prophecy. Not only was he delivered over, but here fulfilled prophecy was seen in verse 17 that it says, and he went out. Now, I don't want to make more of it than I should. Other gospels say that he was led out. Another gospel says he was led away. You say, well, where did he go out and where was he led away to? Glance down at verse 20. The Bible's super clear. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified. And then that little phrase where he was crucified in verse 20 was near the city. It's very clear, prophesied, that the Lord Jesus Christ, the coming Messiah, would not be crucified inside the city walls. He would be crucified outside the city walls. And so he wasn't in the city. He was near the city, but he was definitely crucified outside the city. But if you just backed up, even that little phrase, I believe there in verse um, 17, where he went out or was led away, is a fulfillment of Isaiah 53, 7. He was led as a sheep would go to the what? To the slaughter. All of this is orchestrated by a sovereign God fulfilling the scripture. You say, how could he be delivered over? Well, beloved, God delivered him over. Certainly human instruments gave him up. Certainly human instruments betrayed him. But God Almighty was the one who ultimately gave his son for you. We'll participate in communion in just a little bit. So he was let out. He was crucified. It says in Hebrews 13, 12, it says there, Jesus also clearly suffered outside the gate. He had to suffer outside the gate because it was prophesied that he would be crucified outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. So those were just the opening ones. He's delivered over. He went out. There was a third prophecy. It says in verse 18 there, you could see it, there they crucified him. And I said last week that they didn't stone him, which was the custom of the Jews. If they, if they had stoned him, then the Bible wouldn't be true. 
The very fact that he was crucified was the fulfillment of his own words in the New Testament. Jesus said earlier in the gospel in John 3, 14, as Moses lifted up the servant, the serpent, excuse me, even so the son of man must be lifted up. Jesus said early in his ministry that as they lifted up the brazen serpent, the Son of Man would be lifted up. In fact, the Jews tried to stone him to death on a couple of occasions, you remember that? And he just slipped out of their midst. Jesus himself said in John 12, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. I don't know if you've ever considered that, but crucifixion was a prophecy. In fact, he said this in John 12, to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. Jesus was calling all the shots. So here, though it was at the hands of evil men, Jesus was in perfect control. The Son of God came to earth to be a lamb of God for you. Now, obviously, even the fact that he was crucified fulfilled the messianic psalm of Psalm 22. It was over 700 years prior to the event of the crucifixion that the psalmist David said in Psalm 22:1, my God, my God, why have you, what, forsaken me? That's not in this text, but it's in Mark 15. When Jesus was there in Gethsemane, he cried out in his prayer, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was fulfilled during this event of the crucifixion. In fact, Psalm 22, I don't know if this even comes up on the screen. There it is. It's a description of the crucifixion. 700 years before the event, I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot's herd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet and I count all my bones because you're going to see next week not one of his bones was broken they stare and gloat over me and then here we'll see this morning they divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots it's a messianic prophecy of the crucifixion of Christ that became perfectly fulfilled in Jesus Christ when he died So he fulfilled prophecy. He was delivered. He went out. He was crucified. Fourthly, or letter D, it says in 18b, look at 18. There they crucified him and here and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Now you just read that. He was, as we know, at Golgotha. Three men were crucified, one on either side, and Jesus was between them. He was condemned with two robbers. You say, what prophecy did that fulfill? Well, it fulfilled Isaiah 53, 12. In that messianic psalm of the suffering servant, it says that that suffering servant, the coming Messiah, would be numbered with the transgressors. The Bible said it, that's what happened. You say, well, what if it was just Jesus on Golgotha? Well, then he wouldn't fulfill scripture. 
The Bible says so clearly, as Andy was sharing with us this morning in our members meeting, Isaiah 53 is about the person of Christ. And one of the prophecies is fulfilled right here in this text that he was numbered with the transgressors 700 years before it happened. In fact, Psalm 22 uh, also says that he was with a band of evil men that had encircled him. So true. All these details were foreordained in Scripture for our redemption. But that's not all. There's another one. There's another fulfilled prophecy. Look at verse 19. Pilate also wrote the inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. He was the king of the Jews. And of course, Pilate wrote that, whether he wrote that with his own hand or he had someone write that. And we said that that placard often was carried by the criminal on his way to crucifixion. It went around his neck. When he got to the place of the site that was taken off, it was nailed, if you will, on the cross. And it says that the inscription was, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Of course, for Pilate, He's taking a sarcastic jab at the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, well, why so? Because, well, the inscription said, Jesus of Nazareth. You mean really, Jewish people? You really, remember, he's mad at the Jewish people. You wanted this man crucified. In fact, earlier in the trial, he said, why don't you do it yourself? But remember, the Jews couldn't do it by themselves. Oh, the Jews at times would stone people. I mentioned that last week. But the Jewish people would never crucify someone. And so they needed Pilate. And they trumped up all these false charges against the person of Christ. And so they brought him out after they flogged him. Bloodied and beaten, if you will. His back stripped from the whipping and so forth. And here's the inscription. It says, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And even to add, Nazareth was a jab because if you've been to Israel, you know that it is an utterly insignificant Galilean town. In fact, earlier in John's gospel, it says that uh, Nathaniel or Philip said to Nathaniel, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote. And Philip said, Jesus of Nazareth. And then you remember Nathaniel's response was, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? And so a crucified man from an insignificant town claiming to be a king was absolutely, utterly outrageous. And the Jews said to Pilate in the text, don't say that he's a king. Look, look at the text. It says, In verse 20, for the place where Jesus was crucified near the city. So the chief priest, verse 21, of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. Don't write that he is, just write that he said that he was. But beloved, the truth is, is Pilate couldn't have uttered a more accurate biblical statement The truth was of his own crucifixion is that he is the king. He is the king today. In fact, look back just the previous chapter in 1833 where it says, 
Pilate entered the headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Now you'll note that he responded to our Lord and in essence said, Yes, look at verse 36. My kingdom, so he's a king. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. So Pilate's response, verse 37, so you are a king. So you are a king. It's unbelievable that that statement fulfilled the very word of God. In fact, look down in 1839. But if you, he says, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Look again in chapter 19, verse 12. They said there that everyone who makes himself, uh, you know, a friend to Caesar opposes Caesar. In fact, he made himself, verse 12, to be a king. It's a remarkable statement because he is a king, beloved. Do you remember when the angel said in Luke 1.32 that he will be great, that the Lord God, the angel said, will give to him the throne of his father David, the throne That's because he's the king. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom, there will be no end. Jesus Christ is a king and Pilate wrote that inscription, wrote it on his own, but still behind all of that is the very sovereign hand of God. In fact, in John 1, 49, after he said, Nathaniel, I saw you before you came to me, sitting under the fig tree, Nathaniel responded and said, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. In fact, you remember even in John 12, 13, these are just New Testament prediction, but they said at the triumphal entry, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. So beloved, he, he was delivered. He went out. He was crucified. He was crucified between two robbers. And here he was given the inscription, the true inscription of the king of the Jews. And of course, they wanted him to remove it. And Pilate said, because he was so furious at that time with the Jewish leadership, what I have written, I have written, and it stands this day. And he's not just the king of Israel. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He is what Paul said in Philippians 2, the very king that every knee shall bow and every tongue, what? Confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's amazing. He's not just over a certain group of people. He's over the entire world, and one day that will become specifically clear. But there's another fulfilled prophecy. You just can't get away with it. Look at verse 23. It says, in 23, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them in four parts, one part for each soldier and also his tunic. Okay, this is the fulfillment of prophecy. You got four soldiers, that's what it says. There's four parts. In these days, the clothes were the property of the soldiers delivering death. For the soldiers, this is just 
business as usual. Those who conducted the crucifixion kept what was the, the one who was crucified. Usually that was the clothes, secondly the belt, thirdly the sandals, and possibly the, the head covering. You say, well, the soldiers just did that. Well, they did that. But how would they ever know that 700 years previously, the psalmist penned this statement in Psalm 22:18, they divide my garments among them. Listen, I don't know where you are with the Lord even this morning, but you have to deal with this truth. 700 years, closer to 800, the psalmist David writing under the inspiration of Scripture, speaking of his own life, said they divided my garments among them, but we know that to be a messianic psalm fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. They divide my garments. The suffering described by the psalmist was the direct fulfillment to Christ, though the life of David foreshadowed it. God orchestrated, beloved, with exact precision every detail in order that the scripture might be fulfilled, in order that the Messiah might die your death. You know, I was just trying to to think about that. Just even this morning, this came to me. Maybe when I say 800 years, you just think 800 years. How many years? Let's just go back to... 1520, we're in 2020, how many is that? 1520 and 2020, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, is that just 500 years? Let's say somebody in 1520, first of all, America wasn't even formally recognized at that point, of course there were people here. You just go back to 1520 and somebody wrote in a book, hey, I think there's gonna be this state called California. (laughs) I think there's going to be a place in the Central Valley. They're going to call it that. Then I think that there's going to be a place called Kingsburg. And then I think they're going to start a local church. And then I think that church is going to build two buildings. Now, now if somebody wrote that in 1520, you would say, no way. (laughs) You would say, no way would all that... Come to, you know, there were times where I'm walking in the city of Prague and I'm walking by things in the city of Prague, and whether it's accurate or not, it said this restaurant or this bar was established in 1320. Do you understand, you know, now you're getting back to America, you're getting back to the pilgrims and those who were here, but I'm just saying, just go back 500 years. And somebody would be that specific about this place. Some of you have family that goes back in this central valley four or five generations. What if somebody pinned that about our local church? You'd say that would be absolutely impossible. What I'm telling you is over 700 years ago, the psalmist said, speaking of the coming Messiah, they will divide my garments among them. 
Go back to the illustration of all those silver dollars going 2,000 feet deep in all of the state of Texas, blindfolding a man. One silver dollar is marked. Mix all up the silver dollars in the state of Texas. Send that blindfolded man wherever he wants to go and then pick out the one that was marked out. Stoner said, that's the probability. This is amazing. But I think there's something even more fascinating here. Look at verse 23. Maybe, maybe it is. Okay, it says in verse 23, they divided them into four parts. You think, you think the soldiers were sitting there going, what do you, what do you got, the belt? Uh, what do you got, the shoes? Okay, I'll take the, the head covering. Okay, I'll take. They had no idea that while they're doing that, prophecy is, they're just going about their business. They're murdering him. And they're dividing up his garments. But then it catches their eye. In verse 23, look again. They took his garments, divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier. Also, and then this, the Bible adds this in verse 23, also his tunic. Now, it, just, it takes special interest in the word of God, but the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So the Lord Jesus Christ, when they get him to the crucifixion, usually they would strip the victim naked. We think because it's maybe Jewish posterity crucifying him and putting him up that he had some loincloth. But on him, before they crucified him, they took off this tunic, if you will, woven in one piece. And, and what's interesting is look at the text. They said to one another, they don't even know what they're saying, let us not tear it, but you know this, cast lots, verse 24, for it to see whose it shall be, period. But look at verse 24, this was to fulfill the scripture which says, and you know this scripture, I've read it earlier in Psalm 22, they divided my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. What I want to point out to you is Hebrew scripture is so specific on this, not vague, not, you know, out there. This is specific, that there's two stanzas in that verse. Look at it in verse 24 here, quoting, if you will, uh, Psalm 22, 18. There's two different stanzas. They divided my garments among them. That's what they did, okay? And then after they divided them, it says, and for my clothing, they cast lots. There's two lines, two prophetically fulfilled scripture. Now, I just add this for you. And I don't, I, I don't know if I could pinpoint this exactly. I just think it's fascinating. Interestingly, to me, fascinating. There was only one tunic in the Old Testament that was woven in one piece with only a hole for the head, okay? It's woven out of just one piece. They, they, if there's four soldiers, they can't divide one piece into four parts. You ruin the, the garment. You ruin the tunic. And so they decide to cast lots for it. Who gets this prize? There's only one tunic in the Old Testament. Exodus 28:31. Exodus 28:31. It was the tunic of the high priest. And I can't help but think there's an analogy here 
that Christ goes to the cross as our great high priest. And so they, they cast lots for it because it said that in Psalm twenty two eighteen. In fact, look at verse 24 at the end. So the soldiers did these things. How true is it in Acts 2.31 that this man was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Listen, beloved, in just a moment, we're going to come to the communion table. He did this for you. Far from this thing raging out of control. The greatest evil ever committed in this world that will ever be committed in this world was sovereignly orchestrated by a sovereign God so that the Lord Jesus Christ would deliver himself up for you. Amazing. But there's another. Letter G, another prophecy fulfilled. Look at verse 25, and this is intriguing, and I'll be brief here because there's books written on this. Verse 25, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his four people. Well, five. Were his, just look at it, 25. His mother, don't get confused, and his mother's sister, comma, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene, okay? Four women, I say five because the apostle John is there. It's fascinating, standing by the cross of Jesus, first were his mother. She's there. And there's got to be something, I mean, this is the Lord Jesus Christ. This is her son dying. There's much to say there. It's interesting to me that the first time we meet Mary and John, she's at a wedding. And now the last time we meet John, she's at the funeral for his son and preparing for his burial. The hour that was spoken about is the hour that has come. And do you remember I said, when you think of crucifixion, she's, you think of somebody being lifted up, and certainly he was. But the custom amongst the Romans was to put that cross, the patabulum would go across, the gibbet would go down, and we would think that Jesus was maybe just a couple feet off the ground, and there was his mother. And, look at the text in verse 25, his mother's sister, likely Salome, or Salome, however you would like to pronounce that. Salome, she's mentioned in 1540, to Mary's sister. From other gospels, we know her to be the mother of James and John, which would make the apostle John cousins with the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's his mother, his mother's sister, Zalame, Mary, thirdly, the wife of Clopas, which we know from Mark 15, she's the mother of the apostle James, who was the son of Alphaeus. And then just this touch, and you see this in the other gospels, Mary Magdalene. Say, Scott, why do they call her Mary Magdalene? Because she was from a city called 
Magdala and was just there last year. It's amazing some of the things they're unearthing, even from biblical times, sites that are being kind of unearthed and there's digs going on now. She, Mary, was from Magdalene, or that's what they called her. The city was Magdala. She, of course, in Luke 8.2, was the woman who had eight or excuse me, seven demons cast out of her. Can you imagine being transformed? You got demons filling your body, possessing your body, possessing your soul, and with one word, the Lord Jesus cleansed her. With one word, the Lord forgave her, and she became one of her followers. She's there. And you say, well, well why is this here in the text? I, I think there, there's a number of things, but there's a contrast here. While the soldiers are profiting from our Lord's death, I think these women are there in faithful devotion to the one whose death they can only still see as a tragedy. There's just five there. There's four women and one man, John the Apostle. You you say, well, where is all the rest? Well, we know from the Gospels they all fled because it was prophesied, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be what? Scattered. They all fled. He said, well, why aren't they there? How come they're not there? Well, it's dangerous to be associated with a criminal. It's dangerous in the human mind to be associated with an insurrectionist. And so as our Lord Jesus Christ is on the cross, those four women are there. Look at the statement of the scripture, verse 26. When Jesus saw his mother... It's a tender moment here. And the disciple whom he, what? Loved. I've already demonstrated throughout John's gospel that we believe that's John the apostle. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from That hour, the disciple took her to his own home. And so by these words, our Lord commands John to care for her as if she had been his very own mother. There's much to say, but I think it's tender that the Lord Jesus Christ makes provision for his mother. Joseph, you say, where's Joseph? Presumably dead. We know according to John 7, 5, that none of his brothers born after the Lord Jesus Christ believed in him at this time. So I don't even think his family, the brothers would have been there other than his mother. So John took her into his home And maybe if there's an application, Jesus is caring for his mother, fulfills the Old Testament commandment to honor thy father and thy mother, Exodus 20, 12. I mean, in in a human sense, it may seem mundane in the hour of his greatest trial, in the hour of his greatest suffering. While he not only was inflicted with physical pain, but as God the Father had to, we say, turn his back on God the Son, 
that even in this midst, the beauty of the Savior's love and compassion for his widowed mother in the midst of his own excruciating pain reflects his love for his own, John 13, 1, to the very end. But beloved, I think there's something else there too. You can read it on your own. I think there's more prophecy fulfilled there. You say, well, in what way? Well, do you remember early in Luke's gospel, Mary and Joseph had taken the baby Lord Jesus Christ into the temple 33 years prior to this. And Simeon said, this child is destined to the falling and the rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And then Simeon said to her, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. How would Simeon say that? 33 years earlier, in the temple to a precious little baby coming, if you will, before the religious authorities. And he said he's destined to the cause of the falling and the rising of many in Israel. And a sword, he said this to his own mother, will pierce your own soul too. That prophecy, beloved, I believe, was being fulfilled at this moment, 30 plus Years later, the crowds were mocking. Put yourself there. The thief, singular at least maybe at the end, was taunting. The soldiers were gambling. And Mary is in agony realizing the sword that pierced her soul was being fulfilled at that very moment at his birth. Amazing. Mary must no longer in what the Lord Jesus said to her. Think of the Lord Jesus as being merely her son. Mary must look at him now as her Lord. Mary's suffering, if you will, must be replaced by something nobler, and that is worship, beloved. He is her Savior. And so he calls her woman. Here's your son. It's very dramatic. Of course, the Roman Catholic Church says that means so much more there, but it really doesn't. It's nowhere found or based in Scripture. But there's another prophecy fulfilled. Look on, verse 28. After this, look at verse 28. Jesus knowing, you don't want to just skip that, that all has, was now finished, said to fulfill the Scripture, I thirst. Look at verse 29. A jar of wine just stood there. Oh, it's there. You say, well, why is it there? Well, it's usually there because they said that the soldiers would drink from that sour wine, which was described in the Greek language kind of as a, as a very weak vinegar. It's a cheap vinegar. It's called sour wine. He, and they put it on a sponge. So they just happened to put it on a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch, and they held it to his mouth. Jesus knew, beloved, by saying, I thirst, it would prompt the soldiers to give him a drink. You say, well, why? Because it was a prophecy. 
It's a prophecy again over 700 years previously in Psalm 69, 21. They gave me exact words. Sour wine for my thirst. Amazing. All fulfilled. Sovereignly as he is dying on your behalf, he was given sour wine. Now, I don't want you to be confused. Earlier, Matthew 27, they tried to give him, there's another word, starts with a G. They tried to give him gall to drink, and he refused it. Gall was a sedative uh, to numb the pain. He refused that, and some would say because he wanted to take the full impact of his suffering And so he refused that, the gall, which you think the soldiers were being nice. No, they weren't being nice. They were giving him a sedative to prolong his suffering. He refused that, but he did take, in this text, sour wine. Now, I don't want to go too far, but would you look at something interesting there? Look at it when it says in verse 29, so they put it on a sponge full of sour wine on a what? On a hyssop branch. Possibly John referred to a hyssop branch because it was a hyssop branch. Do you remember if maybe if it comes back to your mind? It was a hyssop branch that was used to sprinkle the blood of the lamb on the doorpost at the Passover in Exodus 12, 22. Remember when the angel of death came through? They had to put blood on the doorpost and it was applied by a hyssop branch. And so perhaps John is making the connection that Jesus is not only the king, but he's also the lamb of God that was slain for your sin. Look at verse 30. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished and he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit listen I think the order is important here John does not say that Jesus died and then his head slumped over just want to be clear he bowed his head an attitude of submission then gave over his spirit and I don't want to get too technical with you He gave over is the word paradokomai. It's the word that he was delivered over in 1916. He's delivered over at the hands of evil men, but John wants you to know, no, no, on his own. He bowed his head, and on his own, he gave over, paradokin, his spirit. It's important for you to know that, that when he died, he died because he willed himself to die. He gave up his spirit. It's exactly what he said in John 10. I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. He died, beloved, voluntarily, if you will, for you. And then he said, it is finished. Now, I don't want to be dramatic, and I won't be, doesn't say it here, but in Mark 15, he shouted it. What would it have been to be like there? To hear not the cry of some beaten down man, but a man who fulfilled destiny. 
fulfilled his own purpose. The son finished his work. It is finished. That's the word tetelestai. His destiny fulfilled. In other words, it means it stands finished. It's done, if you will. In fact, back in biblical times, they would take receipts, as we would even today, for taxes And sometimes on the receipts they found, it would be written across that receipt, Tetelestai. It is finished, which means it has been paid in full. And so it's then that he bowed his head, said to his father, Luke 23, into your hands, I commit my spirit. Then he breathed his last. Oh, listen, beloved, as we come to the Lord's table, you think about this whole story. You can go back, the disciples deserted him. Go back, Peter denied him. Judas betrayed him. The crowds reviled him. The leaders denounced him. The soldiers tortured him. And finally, Pilate delivered him. But there's another one who put him on that cross that I didn't mention is you did, and I did. I don't say this to magnify your guilt, but to display his love and his forgiveness demonstrated on the cross for you. You know, a lot of people say, and boy, rightfully so, remember 9-11. Absolutely. Thousands of people lost their lives in that terrorist act. But if I may, may I just say to you what Paul said is do this, Paul said in Corinthians, in remembrance of me. Listen, beloved, he purchased your redemption. He defeated sin. He granted you eternal life is what the scripture says. To tell us die, your sin was paid for. The laws of The law's demands were fulfilled in his death. Your guilt was forgiven. Salvation accomplished. Love demonstrated. Mercy was lavished upon you. Satan was defeated. Truly, it is finished. May it be that as we go to the Lord's table, you remember this event.